Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello and welcome to this episode of World of Intelligence at Jane's. As usual, your host, Harry Kemsley, and I'm joined by Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Good to see you, Harry. Good to see you, Sean. So, Sean, we've been talking quite a lot recently about a variety of things around open source intelligence. In recent episodes, we talked about a few applications and considerations uh, about open source intelligence. Today, I thought we'd move on or move back to, probably better said, some things we've done in the past, which is looking at the uses, the utility, and the considerations of open source intelligence in support of operations. And today, I thought we might spend some time talking about how open source intelligence might be used to support special operations. So to help us with that, um, we have a guest with us, Gwyn Armfield. Hello, Gwyn. Harry and Sean, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, as always, to have you here, Gwyn. For those that don't know Gwyn, Gwyn Armfield served for nearly three decades of active duty in the United States Air Force, retiring as a Brigadier General. He now leads the RGA Consulting Group, where he advises several clients on leadership, strategy, and technology development. During his time in the military, Gwyn led Air Force combat controllers and para-rescuemen, conducting high-risk, high-return special operations around the globe. He finished his career as the Deputy Commanding General for Special Operation Forces in Afghanistan and as the Vice Director of Plans and Strategy for United States Central Command. For his actions, Gwyn was awarded the United States Air Force Top Leadership Recognition, the U.S. Air Force Lance P. Saijan Leadership Award. He's the co-author of the book, Lead to Serve and Serve to Lead, Leading Well in Turbulent Turbulent Times, with co-author Lieutenant General Retired Bruce Pfister. And he's a frequent speaker at corporate and government leadership training events. Gwyn's passion is equipping others to lead well and enabling organizations to build high-performing, successful teams. Gwyn, it is a delight to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, I can't hear you, Sean. This is a fun conversation, and I look forward to getting into it with you. Very good. So, Sean, as we do regularly, let's start by making sure we're all on the same page about what we mean by open source intelligence. Give us your definition, Sean, as you so frequently do, on what do we mean by open source intelligence, Sean? Yeah, thanks, Harry. It's been a bit of a journey, but I think we've got it into a pretty sound place by what we think and we understand by open source intelligence. And it has to have four main elements. The firstly is that it has to be derived from information that's freely or commercially available to all. Secondly, it has to be derived from legal and ethical sources and techniques. And then in common with the other forms of intelligence, it's got to be applied to a specific problem set or requirement, and it has to add value, the so what, as I call it. Yeah, and that so what and uh, value piece is, of course, what we're going to be looking at today with you, Gwyn, around special operations. Let's start then with a pretty broad question, a high-level question about where do you see the role for open source intelligence in support of your experience of special operations, Gwyn? Here, that's a great way to start the conversation. You know, in the, in the special operations community, we're very human-centric in, in looking at, you know, the intent and the actions of other humans that are out there, more so than, than system-focused, uh, where you see the, the broader conventional forces. So the ability to leverage available open source intelligence to inform fast-paced and dynamic operations, where you're looking at, you know, contextual changes of what's going on in certain specific places, or you're looking at the population and either in a, in a micro sense or a broader sense, the trends in those in, the, in that population of what's being said amongst the people. 
So to inform unique, I I like to call it specialized operations instead of special, but very unique, highly skilled individuals performing specific tasks that usually have high consequences and usually high risk associated with them using everything available to us. And now that I will get into it here in a little bit, but uh, I looked this morning and uh, internet at least is telling me there's about 5 billion people connected. So 5 billion collectors out there all contributing to the global conversation. So that's one thing is the ability to leverage all the available information for time-sensitive missions. The other piece that, that Sean and I talk about frequently is the ability to share information. And you know, a lot of times when you're doing uh, specialized operations, very rarely in 30 years of doing it, very, very rarely did I see that done unilaterally by the United States. Almost always you're working with close allies, partners, or the, or the partner nation. And the ability to quickly find and share information with them without the bureaucratic foreign disclosure process. Uh, again, when you're doing time-sensitive stuff, you got to move quick. And We'll talk a little bit about information veracity, I think, as we get into today's yeah. conversation. Yeah. But the ability to uh, to have readily available information that I can share among partners at the tactical or team level is super helpful. And so uh, I'll stop there on that. But um, yeah, again, that's that's a great way to start. And there's about six or seven things you've said there, which we could probably spend the next hour on each for. So that's perfect. So let's um, let's just tuck in there, Sean. So specialized operations, essentially a human focus where we're trying to understand intent and interactions. I particularly like the point about speed and context, because when you put speed and context alongside veracity, there are risks and opportunities in that space. So let's go and have a look at that in a second. The shareability piece, I'll just take a second to talk about that, because one of the things we found at Jane's in recent times around the Ukraine conflict is that agencies are struggling to share sensitive intelligence with partners they don't normally work with. Using the open source intelligence is making that much easier. Maybe we'll come back to that piece in a second. So for me, Sean, let's focus in around that uh, human focus, that intent piece, and particularly the dynamic between the shareability, time sensitivity, and the veracity piece. Let's just let's just uh, tuck into there. Sean, your, your thoughts are getting started. Yeah, it's interesting. We must have done too many of these together because the two things I just wrote down was speed and context. Now, supporting specialized forces or special forces is always challenging for an intelligence specialist anyway, because you know the agility means that you're not necessarily going to have a full setup organization where you've got all the comms you need, you've got high side and all the rest of it. It was a particular challenge I used to have when supporting special forces in, in Afghanistan, that you've just got to go with what you've got but it's got to be good enough to actually, now I'm going to use the word actionable intelligence here, but I'll use that advisedly. And I don't mean that in this sort of targeting sense, but it's got to be geographically bounded and it's got to be time sensitive. So, you know, for the guys that are mounting operations, whatever they are, they just need what they need to know, but they need it now and they need it um, as reliable as possible. Now, sometimes there's a balance to be struck between all those because you're not going to have the 100% solution right now, but is the 80% good enough? And that that requires really both 
foundational intelligence that you've got access to, but also the granularity of what you what you have on the ground. And of course, open source intelligence has stuff to play there. You know, because of the the electronic electronic uh, spectrum out there that you can just hoover up anyway. Um, and it's worth saying at this point, I think we might get onto this later that you know unclassified does not mean not sensitive, and so you've still got to got to protect that. The question then is for how long you protect it and is it time expired? So actually it doesn't really matter. And of course, I will talk about uh, if we get onto onto the uh, intelligence sharing, which is a really big one for me as well. But there's a huge amount in there. So Gwyn, let, let's just um, step in a little bit deeper to the kinds of activities the specialized operations touch upon where open source intelligence might be useful. So if you think about before the operation is planning, during the operation, there will be information that might be very contextual, very relevant, very time sensitive. And then after it, there is the, the reaction, the effect, the outcome, if you like, the, the post-operation assessment. Do you think there's a difference in terms of the validity of use of open source intelligence in those, I've been very general and simplistic, but those three phases, is there a difference in the utility, do you think, across those three aspects of the specialized operations? Yeah, I think there is, Harry. Um, one of the theories that I that I buy into is is John Boyd's OODA loop, the the ability to observe, orient, and decide and act. Right. And so, it, when you look at the way we make decisions and the, the military decision making process, uh, a lot of that is a a very structured, long term ability to look at options with facts and assumptions and come back with you know the best military option to proceed to solve a problem usually in parallel to other government actions that are being worked as well. You know, we have, right. we have the military option. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll, let me give you an example. Uh, without being specific, about a decade or so ago, there was a, a event that happened overseas. Uh, right. It was unexpected. No one had, had, had seen it coming. And uh, they recalled the, the unit that I was in so that we could respond to it. And uh, as I'm driving into work early, like two, three in the morning, I, I'm listening to BBC. Right. And BBC has a person on the ground, you know, live voice telling us what's going on on the ground from the the, the area of concern. And uh, I get into work and we, you know, we, we go into the to the higher end, you know, intelligence capabilities yeah. Yeah. and they don't know anything like they've got they got nothing. Right. Because those capabilities take a long time in, in the context of a crisis. They take a long time to be applied to a problem. Once yeah. they're applied, they're very helpful. But, you know, we're, we're in a fast moving, dynamic situation where we're going to go out the door in, in a very brief period of time. And I'm sitting in the meeting and I'm like, hey, did any of the rest of you all listen to BBC driving mm -hmm. in this morning? Because it's the only thing yeah. on the radio. And yeah. here's what this guy said from on the ground. And, and I went through about a paragraph of information and it was the only intel that we had. And this is, this is a decade right. ago. Yeah. And this is a, you know, kind of World War II-esque reporter on the ground, you know, passing information. Well, fast forward to 2022 and, and we've got the 5 billion people out there all reporting and right. the ability to sort that out. And, and what I would like, what I always recommended was triangulating. To, to determine veracity, but the ability to feed that into your OODA loop, whether you're in contact with the enemy and taking fire immediately, or whether I'm, I'm going to conduct an extremist operation in 48, 96 hours, or, hey, I've got to develop something over the next six to eight months and, right. uh, and have influence somewhere. Yeah. All of those revolve around the, the OODA loop and the ability to observe, orient, decide, and act, and how uh, open source feeds into that, not only to initiate the planning process, but to validate assumptions as you go yeah. forward. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of times we got to go with what we got in terms of facts and assumptions. And to me, my intelligence collection plan was always geared toward turning my assumptions into facts. Fact, Either right. refute them or turn them into a fact, because that's that's the thing where you go wrong in planning is your assumptions. And we don't spend enough time on those. And then going back in an iterative process to uh, to refine to refine those. And I think the open source, the ability to use this plethora of information out there and then determine, you know, fact from fiction. And we could talk about, you know, influence and how to yeah. use it to influence uh, nefariously. But uh, I think that's critical as, as you look at, especially with an extremist response to uh, missions that are usually geared toward a specialized force, whether it's counterterrorism, hostage rescue, or some other type of event where there's a very no-fail piece to this defined mission bounded by time. Yeah. It just remind me, your anecdote reminds me of a couple of things. One, which is a war story that I'm not entirely sure Sean can talk about on this uh, podcast, where he got some intelligence from a source on the ground. But it reminds me of, James, we have contributors all around the world who are on the ground. They might be local academics, they might be tribal leaders, they might be local government, and they provide us with insights into what they're seeing, hearing uh, in terms of sentiment or events on the ground. And sometimes that is the only place we can find any record of an emerging issue. Clearly, once we've started to detect something is happening, we can look for other sources. And then that brings us to the point, I suppose, Sean, in terms of tradecraft that Gwyn just mentioned, that with 6 billion collectors pouring information into the environment, we don't know they're all true, but with triangulation and good tradecraft, we can begin to zero in on where the truth is most likely to be. So that brings us, does it not, Sean, to the open source intelligence community's support to ops, particularly in the time-sensitive arena, having to be extremely good at the triangulation process, finding where things are clustering in terms of the most likely source for truth. Sean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, back to that that great word, tradecraft. And I know we are going to have a future uh, podcast on tradecraft, but and it, and it's back to what Gwyn was saying initially about, you know, it's human-centric business. Every, every human being is a sensor. The question is, is, is to triangulate, as you said previously, different sources and then discern what is true and what is just misinformation, disinformation. Th th there are elements there of sentiment analysis that you can look at as well. So it's hoovering up what's available immediately and being able to filter that and say, right, this is relevant, that isn't relevant. Now, that's a real challenge. And I think it's a real challenge for the intelligence community uh, per se anyway, although to be fair to them, they've been doing it for many, many years now. So the one thing we've learned over the last 20 years is how to do counterterrorism uh, support from intelligence perspective. But I think it's quite new that using open source intelligence to support that, much as some of us have been doing that for maybe the last five or 10 years, I think in terms of a formal process, um, it's fairly nascent. And, you know, just looking at the Ukraine crisis, so slightly getting away from special forces, but you know, we learned pretty quickly about the value of limitations to open source intelligence in supporting that, whether that was from a messaging perspective, whether it was sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians or just understanding ourselves. I think we have learned a lot there, but I think in terms of the, the agility that we're talking about and the timeliness, I think we're fairly nascent still in terms of supporting special forces. Yeah. And Gwyneth, let me just um, pull us in a slightly different direction. So we've, we've discussed that OSINT is and can be very useful to the preparation for the conduct of and even the understanding after the fact for specialized operations. 
But what about the limitations? You mentioned a couple of times veracity, and that's very frequently raised as a concern of the open source because of the thing Sean just mentioned, mis- and disinformation that is uh, very widely spread into the 6 billion collectors. What about the limitations? Where do you start to get that uneasy feeling about only using, for example, open sources? Where would you start to feel the pinch of unease about uh, relying upon that? Yeah, I don't think I would ever act on open source information. You know, it, it, it tips and cues. Uh, right. It validates. It provides uh, indicating, you know, leading indications of kind of where things might be trending in a different direction. Uh, the biggest thing that I just wrote down here was having reliance on others. Where you know, hey, if they just go off the net, and if I if we're you know monitoring social media or we're watching the news or something else, I don't have the ability to know I'm going to have that source of information as the operation unfolds or afterwards. Right. So we want to be able to provide more reliable uh, and trusted abilities to put on top of this. But I think it uh, is a great way to kind of pathfind into into where you want to be, and then to use that information to to validate as you go along. Yeah, I, I sense, Sean, from our previous conversations in terms of this limitation, one of the limitations that we've discussed in a podcast recently that will be broadcast quite soon, Gwyn, was about the power of technology to create very, very compelling, very compelling disinformation. Um, we talked specifically about deep fakes, the synthetic media that can be created. And a guest we had on, Di Cook, was talking to us about the fact that the human can no longer detect these uh, these fakes. And that does bring for me a real sense of unease about some of the things that we might be seeing in the open spaces, particularly if we were focused, Sean, through the straw at one or two sources that seem to be the same thing, saying the same thing. Um, does that not really underscore, once again, in black ink, the need for multiple sources that are clustering around a particular point? Does that not, again, Sean, underscore the need for tradecraft? It does indeed. Absolutely. I, I would, again, I'd go back to you're not going to act on purely open source. But, right. but and I would just just slightly question in terms of it would it not depend on what the imperative to act is? If there are people are significant threat, for example, and it was worth taking the risk. And this is where the special forces are are probably equipped and prepared to take more risk than, say, conventional operations. You know, would would you see a, a, a situation where you have no option but to take that open source with all the, the all the risk that comes in. Now, you know, that that is a really difficult potential ethical discussion as well. Mm. But but I agree with what you said, Harry, in terms of, you know, it, it is behoven on the intelligence community, whether that's commercial or or indeed government, to provide every single piece of intelligence it can. And actually in a, in a few I used the fuse word then, in a in an integrated way with the background knowledge to say this is our best calculation, our best assessment, our best analysis based on what we've got. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's up to the intelligence specialist to provide the threat assessment, if you like, that analysis. But it's the operational commander that has to accept or not accept the risk. So the balance of risk win against available intelligence, I guess, is the question there. You sort of alluded to it earlier. Sometimes you have to move because it's a no-fail environment and we need to start acting upon what we're seeing. But if all we're seeing is from social media or other open sources, then that's a higher risk environment. Yeah, I think it comes down to trust. 
you know, and, and, and trust is very subjective. Sure. Uh, it, you know, I always, uh, when we were doing this, uh, years ago and I was still on active duty and we we're starting to, you know, look at using open source and we were using open source for things. Uh, I, you know, look, you look at the, at the Intel officer and say, Hey, can you put a trust metric on this? You know, green, <laughs> yellow, red, one to five, you know, where, where are we on this? And, uh, and that was very nascent in, 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 our, in our ability to kind of fuse this all together. But, you know, it would be really neat if you had like a trust meter on things yeah. like this and you could, you could put it on there, but just quickly back to risk. Uh, I had a conversation with, um, with someone earlier this week, but how do you define risk? And the, the way I, I like to do it, and I think it's probably doctrinal, is risk to force, risk to your people uh, in, in, your, in your assets and resources, and risk to mission. And if you look at the standard chart of high consequence, high probability, and then back it down to low consequence, low probability, you've got to look uh, at both of those independently, and then as a decision maker, fuse them together. Uh, there's certain things, there's certain missions out there. They're very rare where you're going to take a high risk to force so that you mitigate the risk to mission. But in most cases, uh, you're going to balance those two out because if you get it wrong, there's nothing left. You have a very finite uh, ability. You have a very finite pool of assets. There's usually not one forward, two back, like, like in the conventional sense uh, of, of a line infantry unit, you've got a unique capability. It's either so forward position, you can't get anybody else there in a reasonable bottom line time to act. So you gotta, you gotta kind of think through the application of that force in a lot of different ways. But the, the idea of looking at this, of what's my risk to my force and how do I use open source to mitigate that risk? And then how do I use the same to mitigate risk to the mission that's been given to me? And, and I think that's that's where this kind of I've got my facts and assumptions and then I've got constant input of open source intel. You know, every jock out there has got four or five different news feeds going right. and, and you're informed by that. And uh, I remember, you know, in, in a, in a in latter part of my career, walking into the four star briefing and looking up at the news and seeing something that happened in Syria. Something right. consequential had happened. I'm like, I bet we're going to hear about that. Yeah, right. and, and, and then I walked in the boss's office and I'm like, hey, just did you guys see this happened? And, you know, 72 hours later, we had, you know, presidential direction to act on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that, that, the ability to tip and cue and kind of get your mind around things to, to start thinking through options. So I'll stop there, Sean. So Sean, I, I can see you want to come in. But just before you do, when, when you've given, given us your thoughts, Sean, I'd like to go back to this word trust. And I'd like to talk about technology in the trust realm. But let me come back to that in a second. Sean, go ahead. It, it was the trust beat that I was going to come in on, oh, actually. Right. <laughs> okay. And it, it's a little bit of an anecdote because the trust, as much as anything, it, it is between the commander and his intelligence staff. It's something that I've looked at in, in great detail over the years where it's understanding the limitations of the intelligence and actually understanding uh, the intelligence person understanding what the requirement is. You know, it was one situation where I was, again, uh, no names, but a steely eyed killer commander was wanting to mount an operation. And my role was to give him a threat brief, air threat brief. And it was pretty significant, the threat brief. But what he wanted to hear from me was actually that the threat was okay. And, and I actually had to gently tell him, look, the threat is what it is. And I'm not going to dilute the threat. It's your risk to decide whether you want to take that risk in terms of losing potentially losing an aircraft etc with and it was more a political thing than it was a a physical thing um 
but it took us a while. But once we got round there, then the under, the mutual understanding and the trust was really good after that. It, it was a pivotal time, but I've been had in many cases where I wouldn't say the commanders wanted to abdicate their responsibility or their decision making, but they haven't really understood the limits of the intelligence. Now, that's as much due to the, uh, the intelligence staff not being able to articulate, like you said, Gwyn, give me a give me a sort of a, a rough number on what how accurate you think it is, you know, not just a probable or possible. It's one thing I try to inculcate uh, in our military headquarters where, you know, instead of doing the whole probability yardstick or something, we'd stick our neck out. Now, high risk, but actually it's very much appreciated and it allows that commander to to in, be informed enough as to whether to take that risk or not. So the trust is as much between the commander and his intelligence staff uh, as it is with the information. Yeah, great. Let me just um, tuck into your um, your passion building high-performing successful teams, which in the specialized operations arena, I guess, is an intrinsic feature of those teams. We'd like to think so. Trust in those environments is built on a number of different things. And let's just pull that word trust up to the conversation we're having here about the use of open sources or other sources to help us assess the risk. Is it not fair to say that that trust, because it has to be earned, takes a long time to be generated and that when you're trying to build an intelligence team around a decision support team, around a mission team, and what you really need to do is get to know each other really, really well, because then you look in the guy's eyes and you get that sense of, I know this guy's got it. Doing that with a machine, doing that with a lot of machinery involved, and maybe I'm revealing more about my age and generation than I should, but I get this feeling that we're losing that contact, that human understanding. What's your view about performing teams and that built building trust piece because it's an intrinsic part of the role surely I hear you're spot on it's it's this subjective human human on human contact where we you know uh, I think you know within seconds of meeting somebody uh, we, we we start drawing our own conclusions of whether or not this person's an asset or a liability uh, mm-hmm. to the team's mission that we're all on together one of the uh, the truths that the US socom uh, organization the, the 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 enterprise has has kind of been founded on is the uh idea that you cannot create capability after an emergency occurs you've right. got to create the capability before the emergency or before the crisis and then you rely on frankly the trust that's created in this pre-crisis environment to then roll in on an event so I recently had a conversation with a, a senior special operations leader in the U.S. about the ability to take AIML and apply it to uh, intelligence problems with the goal of reducing the analytic manpower requirement. And, you know, are we counting things? Are we doing simple human tasks that a machine can do? And, uh, and, the, and the officer's reply to me was, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, we're all asking for this. But we haven't been able to write a good requirements document because what we really want to know is how is the machine coming up with this answer? Because before I take this to the president or to the prime minister (laughs) and get execute authority, I've got to trust that this is absolutely right. And, yeah. uh, and and I don't think we've gotten to that point yet where we yeah. can where we can explain, you know, how things do what they do. And, you know, with an iPhone, the consequences are really usually pretty low. Yeah. And, and I think that's pretty cutting edge technology because it's informed by so much data. And it still doesn't take me to the same to the right place on my map all the time. 
you know, and, and that's probably got more crowdsourced info than anything. Yeah. And until that can hit about 95 to 100 percent of the time, I'm not going to trust what a nascent, what we'll call it the gonculator, a gonculator spits out to a intel officer who then takes it to a decision maker who, or a policymaker who then takes it to a senior national leader. And that's in, in, the, in the special operations world. That's kind of what you're dealing with is the missions that, hey, this is a um, very senior national, usually international collaboration to go do something. And we, uh, we really, really got to get the intel right. But, yeah. oh, by the way, it's happening in, in double time, triple time speed than what we're comfortable dealing with. Yeah. And so the idea of, hey, I need to trust this person. Uh, in the past, we did it by just, you know, hey, we're all forward deployed. And if this person does what they say they do, or they, they do what they say they can do over time, the ability to deliver on their words, uh, that's what builds trust with me. You yeah. know, they're, yeah. they're on time. They got the right information. They're prepared for success. But they, when they say they can do something, they do it. And after about three or four times, my trust factor with them is, is, yeah. is really high. Yeah. Uh, if I don't have the chance to get those reps in previously or I'm working with a new piece of technology, that trust factor is going to be really low for a period of time. Yeah. I guess then the takeaway from that, Gwyn, is that if it is inevitable that we have to use technology to, for example, sort through those six billion six billion collectors out there to find the nugget, the, the corner of the haystack where the needle might be hidden. If we're going to do that, if that's a necessity, which I suspect it probably is, then I believe we need to spend more time with the AI technology, with the data that's flowing through it and so on, so that we get that trust. The number of times we go around that boy, the greater we get to the point where we start to trust the technology. But Sean, I think it's fair to say, in our previous conversations, we've concluded that human in the loop, certainly for the foreseeable future, is a necessity, not a desirable, and that the machines can augment the human in the stuff that the human doesn't need to do is still, I think, where the machine needs to stay, leaving the human to do the important stuff. Would you agree with that, Sean? Yeah, I think my position is clear on, on on this: is that you use the the algorithms as a tool to help you make those decisions. Right. Um, because at the moment, you know, however clever they are, I don't think they can. They've got the cognitive uh, ability to provide that. So what? This is what I think, and that might be based on experience, and it's back to the human element as well. You know, as an intel specialist, I knew I had probably three three chances in front of a big commander to get it right, get it concise. Um, you know, and then and then I'd be sacked, and that was quite right. And it used to happen. There's a, a four star, ex four star of your and mine acquaintance who used to sack people on the spot, and used to use his specialists, the corporals in particular, because they just knew their stuff and knew what was required, and that's mm. right. So the human element, back to almost where we started. It is just so important, but it's got to be someone who has the the background, the context, the experience, uh, and and the ability to filter everything I know to this is what the boss needs to know. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring this into the the, the current day conversation when we start talking about decision dominance, and, and that's what's really driving this idea in the U.S. at least between joint all domain command and control, where you can automatically link sensors to shooters. And you know, the fundamental thing we're getting at here is trusting that system to work. Uh, I, I I always joke about the 1980s U.S. movie War Games, where they mm -hmm. have the Whopper. 
you know, and is making these decisions that uh, that affect the nuclear enterprise that can't be stopped. But, you know, it's a, it's a 1980s vignette that actually kind of applies today when you start looking at this ability to trust machines to make, uh, you know, frankly, uh, you know, human on the loop is what we're calling it now where you can stop it. But the I th- I, what I would come back to uh, just quickly is the unique attribute, the unique competitive advantage of the Western alliances is our ability to make decisions quickly because we delegate down to the lowest competent level is what John Mattis used to say. Mm-hmm. And we trust our lower levels to perform on intent. And, you know, that that's just a unique attribute that we've got to empower as we go forward when we start looking at, you know, the the, the competition uh, that we're in now with, with great powers. But this ability to push decision making down and, and rely on our subordinate leaders to execute on intent uh, that, that the, our competitors cannot do that. Their societies don't really uh, they don't they don't create that condition then you can bring into your military to use uh, to your advantage. So as we as we think through how to bring open source intelligence in, how do we bring AI ML into the the bigger military, you know, uh, decision making process on shoot, don't shoot. And then when we get into a shoot and fight, you know, how do we match sensors to shooters? Uh, the fundamental issue there is trust. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're still at the whopper stage. Of the, all the lights are flashing yeah. and things are working, but we're not really sure how that thing's going to work. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, you know, over time that develops. But um, I, I do hope in a minute here we'll jump into this idea of ethical uh, use of OSINT and, you know, the ubiquitous technical next. surveillance. Just where I'm piece. going next. And just, yeah. just as we step across to the uh, ethical issue before we start to summarize, um, I think the maneuverist approach, this acting on intent piece that you've uh, just touched on there, Gwyn, is a significant competitive advantage for our uh, own allied forces. But that, again, isn't happening just because we were taught it from a book once. That is something we've trained and retrained and practiced and repracticed. So I think for me, I'm starting to, the takeaway I'm starting to get here is that if OSINT and technology are going to be plugged into things, it needs to be done regularly, frequently, until people get that sense of familiarity and therefore trust. So let's move on to ethics. And Sean, I'm sorry, I, I did cut you off there. I know you wanted to come in, but when I, we need to move on. The Use of open sources, then. Um, Technology going out there, scraping in internet for information that we might find intelligence value in, has come up as an ethical issue in an earlier podcast we did with uh, a lady, Dr. Amy Ziegert, that was a fascinating conversation. What's your take uh, in terms of the use of the open source environment, Quinn, on the ethics of doing so and the necessary impact that would have in terms of the way we'd operate? Grim? Yeah, thanks for that, Harry. Uh, you know, the, the terms dystopian and Orwellian are the first two things that come to mind mm-hmm. when we start when we start looking into this. Uh, the fact that we would that people would willingly carry around a device on their body, you know, almost 24 hours a day that, that feeds unknown collectors, you know, whether it's for marketing or anything else like we willingly pay to do that. So, you know, do the ends justify the means? I don't think they do because you start you start uh, disestablishing the fundamentals of your society when you go down that road. Uh, Sean and I, previous to, to getting on today with you, Harry, we're, we're talking about the, the U.S. Constitution's Fourth Amendment against unreasonable or unlawful search and seizure written yeah. hundreds of years before the internet existed. Uh, the problem now is that that takes into account 
the privacy that someone would have within their home. But when you start putting information out, it's publicly viewable. you know, now we're in this gray zone of, hey, does the Fourth Amendment protect that or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's that's for for lawyers to talk about. But you know, the idea that we uh, believe in a democratic process, and you know, eventually, you know, does every device in your house need to have an IP address? You know, does my light need an IP address? Uh, I I am a maybe a luddite when it comes to you know, embracing that. But I, I like to think that if my Wi-Fi goes out, my house can still function. So yeah, I, right. I've been resistant to embrace, uh, you know, all that technology can offer me. Uh, maybe it's because of my background a little bit too, but I, I really do worry about, uh, you know, the, the approach to Orwellianism that we're, we're, we're rapidly trading convenience for privacy and right. where that takes us as a democratic society. Yeah. And the access to that freely available, publicly um, available information and being used for intelligence, Sean, is something we've talked about before in terms of where are the lines being drawn. And we we agreed, I think, with Dr. Amy Ziegert that there isn't really substantial policy or protocols out there which we can put our hand on and say that is guiding us. And I don't, I don't recall anything being substantially confidence building in terms of that uh, that approach for access to public available information. No, it's definitely a grey area, but it's something that we need to more and more consider because I agree, you know, the end justifies the means, which you do hear a lot at the tactical levels, you know, slightly crass. It's just not acceptable, particularly where you don't know where the information is coming from and you don't know what's going to be used with it. So that sort of piece in the middle. So it does require legislation, as Gwyn said, but it, it, it also requires TTPs, tactics, techniques and procedures and policy, which needs to be practiced because there are so many grey areas. I mean, obviously, I've got a background in targeting. And we used to have some really searching questions within the targeting boards at senior levels about whether we should hit a a concrete target or not, um, based on all the things you'd expect. And and we were were far, in some ways, we were far too uh, risk averse in terms of what impact we'd have had. But equally, without having those checks and balances, then you get into a very bad place very quickly. I mean, I think this is almost a podcast for another day because it is really quite a deep discussion. You know, how what are the limitations of you using, call it surveillance if you want, you know, your mobile phone, but everything to, you know, as you know, London is absolutely stuffed full of surveillance cameras. Sure. What what are the limitations of using those? And that's back down to limitations of technology. So um, face recognition, for example, which has been proved to be less than accurate, but is clearly being used more and more. So we're going to have to get better with that. Go ahead. You know, I think the real challenge we're going to have is that we can have we will have our own ethical conversation within a democratic society of how to do this. The challenge is going to be our adversaries will not have that conversation. Right. right. And, and they will just be full on either exploiting the technology we've created to, to make our lives convenient, or they will use their own technology for their own ends. And that's where things are going to get messy, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Sadly, we are going to run out of time. So what I'm going to do now is ask you both to think about, for the audience purposes, What's the one thing you want them to take away with regard to the use of open sources in the specialized operations area? Um, I'll come to you first, Gwyn, after my uh, few comments in a second, and then to you, Sean. Um, So for me, then, what have I really taken away from today? And there is so much that I could pick on. I think there's probably two things that I really want to, I'd like to zero in on. First, to remember that in the specialized operations arena, you are talking about a human environment. The domain is principally about the human interactions. 
And the fact that to operate there with the appropriate level of risk to either force or mission means you have to trust things. You have to work in a trust environment. means you've got to build high-performing teams. And now those high-performing teams need to include technology because of the scale of the problem we have in terms of volume, veracity, and velocity of information that we have available to us, certainly the open source environment. So for me, the takeaway is for the open source environment and the intelligence analyst, we're going to have to practice this a lot. We're going to have to get comfortable with the use of technology, comfortable using open source intelligence. And just like we have for the maneuverist approach, working on intent, delegating authority to the right level, that takes practice, that takes a lot of uh, attention to detail. So for me, it's that. It's that fact that we have to work at this is not going to be easy. Let me go to uh, you, Gwen, next. Your chance. Here, if there's one thing I'd say about using open source intelligence and specialized missions is that you've got to understand the cultural context of the information that you're using. And you can't mirror image your society's interpretation of that information onto what's really going on. Yeah, that's and I, we talked about that before, haven't we, Sean? That cultural, yeah, piece, that but, cultural uh, element uh, again. When I was let, let me so let me resist down. let me resist the temptation to open up the podcast again and let it run. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, so I just say just 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 the breadth of what we've discussed, and you know, we 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 clearly went off piece, but all of it is relevant. Just says to me that that you know, in OSINT support special forces, just amplifies all the challenges that we already kind of recognize within supplying supplying open source intelligence to to operational situations. And it, and it is a huge challenge where we need to knit all the different factors together. So complex, but if we crack this one, then we can crack anything. Yeah, very good. Gwen, what can I say? It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, I know we could have spent another two or three hours, and I say that probably on every podcast because it's true. These, these topics are genuinely interesting and important. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I'm sure the audience will have found much of this very, very interesting. And uh, if I may, I'm going to put you down as one of those people on a long list of guests who'd like to get back and follow up on some things. Gwyn, thank you. Looking forward to talking again, Harry. All right, thank you. Sean, as ever, thank you very much. Thanks, Harry. Good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, chains.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.